Amen. So we are uh, wrapping up today a sermon series that we've called Finishing Well. Sometimes it feels like the further we go in life, our lives can look a little more like this guy bouncing off the curbs on our, I want to call it a tricycle, but it's got four wheels, so it's not a tricycle. I don't know what it is, a little go-kart, a little something. Um, But even though life comes with all sorts of uh, close calls and, and potential crashes, we think that if we read God's word, if we get to know the God who made us, if we follow his ways in our life, then even in the midst of the challenges and the complexities of our world, we can finish well. Life, we said, and not just us, but many people have said, uh, it can feel kind of like a chess game. There's three parts. There's the opening. There's the mid-game. There's the ending. It's all part of the same life that we live, yet there is distinct challenges, strategies, questions, complexities in each of the three parts. And so we ask ourselves this question, what does it mean to finish well? And as you think about that question, I'm going to do what I've been doing too often. I keep forgetting to change my slides to the sermon layout for the back, if you wouldn't mind doing that, because I can't see what I put on the back. And full disclosure, if I can't see what I put on the back, I'm just sitting here making stuff up. And I don't think you want me to sit here and make stuff up. Maybe you do. I mean, maybe we could try that sometime. Probably not. Hey, there it is. Um, what does it mean to finish well? And, and here's, the answer, um, here's the answer that we gave on the first Sunday, and we've kind of been echoing. But finishing well means living a life that is focused on hearing and responding to God's voice. We all have voices in our minds. Sometimes it's our own voices, uh, our own self-critics. Sometimes it's the voices of the world around us. There's so many voices in this world vying for our attention. And our task as followers of Christ is to learn the sound of God's voice and to put put the work of hearing his voice first and in front of all of the other voices of the world around us. But that's the thing, right? There's other people telling us what it means to finish well. I was reminded of the commercial series, and actually it's still kind of a headliner, um, of a major investment company called Ing. Uh, do you guys, are you guys familiar with Ing, I-N-G? Is that what you call it, Ing, or is this, right? And they have this series of commercials and this sort of investment, uh, I don't know, advertising scheme called What's Your Number? And what they do is they have these pictures of people walking around whether at work in a kitchen baking or, you know, at your neighbor's yard or on the elevator, walking around with some sort of a number tucked under your arm or weighed down on your back. And obviously they're an investment company. So for them, finishing well means getting to retirement and having enough money in your nest egg so that, you know, I don't know, you don't have to move back into your kid's basement. Maybe you want to move back into your kid's basement anyway. But According to Ng, they define finishing well, in the world of retirement at least, as having enough money in the bank. It struck me, this question, what's your number? I think we actually do this in a lot of different ways, don't we? We we like to put a number on all sorts of things and we tell ourselves, you know what, if I can hit this number, then that's going to be the thing that makes it all right. If I can hit the financial number, then that'll mean I can finish well. If I can hit the right number of vacation days, that'll mean I can finish well. If I choose at this stage of life to have the right number of kids, then maybe that'll mean that I'll finish well later. If I, uh, we even Christianize this in different ways, right? If I go on the right number of days of service trips, 
then maybe that means I'm going to finish well. If I spend the right number of hours in my faith, then maybe I'm going to finish well. I think Ing has this successful advertising scheme because in some way they've hit on something true in a lot of our hearts. What we really would like is to have a number. Because if I can put a number on it, then I can measure it, and then I can know whether or not I've achieved what I'm looking for. But it turns out, Jesus didn't give us a number. I wanted him to. I've asked him. Jesus, just give me a number that I can measure and I can tell people, hey, here it is. Put up one of those big thermometers on your wall and just every time you fill it in and then we can know, like, how close am I to the goal? But Jesus doesn't talk about it that way. As a matter of fact, the way Jesus talks about the God-word life gives us something that is both way more challenging but also way more life-giving than just putting a number on each of our backs. We started this series looking at um, one of the teachings from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous and his longest block of kind of straight-up teaching content. And I want to wrap up this series by looking at another one of the things that Jesus said in that same sermon. If you want to go there in your Bibles, Matthew uh, chapter number 5. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 5, starting in verse 21. Uh, These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But... I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there... Remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Would you pray one more time with me? God, um, we want your words to be the central, the foundational, the guiding reality of our lives. We know that every one of us chooses to base our lives, to build our lives on some foundation. Help us, God, to build our lives, to make our choices, to set our directions, to to choose our attitudes and our actions based not on the voices of the world around us, but rather, God, based on your voice. And may your voice speak to us through your written word this morning, we pray. Amen. Uh, so much we could talk about in this passage. Oh, I mean, really, the Sermon on the Mount, we could just, I feel like we could just preach the Sermon on the Mount on repeat, and that might be enough. Um, might, okay, maybe not. Let's, don't, don't read into that too much. But um, the, 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 uh, the sentence, the statement that I want to put forward as kind of the headliner of what this whole teaching about comes right at the end, when Jesus says, first... Go and be reconciled. And I'm just going to kind of do the, the good old-fashioned. Old I'm going to tell you right up front, here's what I'm going to say. 
And then after I tell you what I'm going to say, I'm going to say it. And then after I said it, I'm going to go back and tell you again what I said. Because I took eighth grade English, and I remember how to write papers. Um, Jesus is saying that our reconciled relationships with one another are more important to God than our worship of God. Let me say that again. Jesus is saying in this text that our reconciled relationships with one another are more important to God than our worship of God. And if you can't believe that's true, Jesus said it, not me. So if, what does that mean about finishing well? What does that mean about, is ing right about how we finished well? Is there a number out there? Is there, a, is there some mark we can measure? Well, here's what I'm going to um, unpack from Jesus' teaching today. If you want to finish well, you must learn how to reconcile. And here's why I know that's relevant. Um, because the world we live in demonstrates reconciliation is a constant need for all of us. It's just a constant need. Why? Because brokenness is prevalent in our world. Broken relationships you don't have to throw a stone far at all to stumble across broken relationships. Let me just do a quick quiz. Anybody here part of a family? Anybody here um, a mom or a dad or have a mom or a dad? Or uh, Come on, people play with you. Don't, there we go. Okay, good. Everybody is. Now, hold on. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Anybody here part of a family that's had some uh, relational challenges? Okay, good job. You all kept your hands up. Uh, how about this? Anybody here? Not everybody will raise. Anybody here part of a marriage? Anybody here married? Who are my married couples? Yeah, hey. Uh, anybody here part of a marriage that's had some um, fights or relational challenges or tension? Oh, couple got good job. The hus- couple husbands put their hands down. <laughs> uh, anybody here have friendships that have experienced hurt? or betrayal. Anybody here, um, man, some of the brokenness in your family is so great that there's actually family members that don't even come around anymore, right? We don't talk about Bruno. No, no, no. Anybody here, I mean, you you certainly don't raise your hands, but um, there's people or you know people who the challenges of marriage got so so great that you're single again, or your brother or your sister or your aunt or your uncle has gone through that type of horrific brokenness. The brokenness of relationship is prevalent in our world. Or how about this? Anybody been part of a church family that's experienced relational brokenness? Yeah, all of us. All of us have. All of us will. And the brokenness of relationship is something that God says should matter to us even more than our worship of God matters. So let's unpack this text. There's three things I want to look at. Um, This is the first of six antitheses. What a great word. It's a vocab word for the day. Uh, Six antitheses that Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to talk about the significance of Jesus's six antitheses. Um, Second, I want to talk about the temple. Uh, The context is, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and he's talking about the altar of the temple, I want to talk about the significance of the temple to Jesus's audience. And third, I want to talk about that statement. Leave your gift at the altar. Uh, That would have 
been a punch in the gut for Jesus' first audience, and I'm going to see if it can't become a bit of a punch in the gut for us. So first of all, um, Jesus' six antitheses, they're, they're um, captured. You can find them all. If you go read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in each one of them, you have heard that it was said. And in pretty much all of them, he's quoting Scripture. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes Scripture. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing in each of these is what he describes himself as he is bringing completion and fulfillment to God's law for God's people. If you recall, God gave a law to his people. It was in this really cool thunderstorm on top of a mountain, and there were some tablets that Moses got mad and broke, and he went back, and he's like, sorry, could I get another copy? And God was like, oh my gosh, it was so much work, but yes, I'll give you another copy. And that was the law. And the law was meant to be of critical importance for guiding God's people how to live in his ways in this world. And Jesus is saying, you heard that it was said. You remember what the law said? Remember that? Yeah, yeah, you guys remember that? And his audience is like, uh, yeah, Jesus, we remember that. Um, well, you heard it was said, but I'm going to say something more. Not to replace, not to undo anything that was said, but to bring it to completion. And I could go on and on about this, but I'm just going to, I'm going to make three observations, and actually I'm not even going to make them, I'm just going to repeat, I'm going to report to you three observations that I read other smarter people make about Jesus' six antitheses. Here's the sorts of shift Jesus is prompting in his people. He's prompting us to make a shift from an outward focus to an inward focus. I mentioned in my first uh, sermon in this series, um, the author, the uh, pastor, the uh, justice worker, a man named John Perkins. And as John Perkins has spent his life working towards building racial reconciliation, particularly in the church, one of the things he says over and over and over and over is racial reconciliation in America will never happen without heart transformation by God. External reconciliation will never happen without internal heart reconciliation. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. Yeah, 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 you shouldn't murder outward, physical. Like, let's, let's be clear, I'm not saying that that's going away, but I'm also saying you also shouldn't be angry as well. Jesus is moving us from an outward to an inward focus. Second, Jesus is moving us from rules to principle because Jesus knows that we're really good at finding the rule and doing exactly what's necessary so that I can say, yeah, I followed the rule. <laughs> no, Jesus says, it's more than just checking a box. He wants to move us from rules to principles. And third, Jesus' six antitheses are showing that he wants to move us from an avoidance mindset to a pursuit mindset. The problem with rules is it makes us go, okay, this is all the bad stuff. All I'm going to do is I'm going to avoid the bad stuff. And if I avoid the bad stuff, then, hey, problem solved. I've done what I need to do. I've checked the boxes. I've avoided what's wrong. But instead, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's not just about avoiding what's wrong. It's about pursuing what is good and right. This kind of hit me in the gut um, because it's easy to give these sort of uh, abstract ideas up on, the, up on the screen. But I got an email in my inbox uh, from Carl Bruce, who runs our, our Wednesday morning men's breakfast and uh, men's ministry. And um, he sent a podcast interview between a theologian, Miroslav Volf, uh, and a Ukrainian pastor. And in the interview, 
Wolf was asking the pastor about what caused him to choose to stay in Ukraine and minister to the needs of those hurting people, even when many family and friends were saying, you know what? Get out. Get to safety. And don't hear me wrong. Anybody and everybody who has fled Ukraine, I totally get it. But this man was exploring why he chose to stay, and ultimately what he said is it's not just so much about getting away from the danger, though that is valid, but in my case, it's about pursuing the ministry God has given me an opportunity for right here in this place. The very first book Miroslav Volf ever published, uh, his title, it just captured me, and I think it it kind of puts a picture to this idea of Jesus is calling us not just to avoid something, but to pursue something. The title of Wolf's first book is The Sun is Not Afraid of the Darkness. You have heard it said, don't do this, don't do that. Stay away from this, stay away from that. But I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you to pursue God's kingdom first in every way. In a sense, you could say Jesus is inviting us not only into a new way of living, but also into a new way of seeing the world around us. When we look at whatever we see in the world around us, when we look at current events far away, when we look at the relationships right in front of us, are we seeing it through our own human eyes or are we seeing it through the eyes of one who has been shaped by the words of God? We're not going to learn to be people of reconciliation until we can learn to see the world and see the people in our lives with the eyes that Jesus called us to see. That's just the context. All we did is we set the stage. I mean, we've just, we're just, we just scratched the surface. So let's dive into the text now. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often offer gifts at altars. Uh, In some church traditions, we might call this the altar, but here we often just call it the platform or the stage. We have a little more of a functional definition of it. Um, But for Jesus' audience, this is a group of largely Jewish people in the ancient Near East. For Jesus' audience, they would have had a very clear and very specific image that come to mind. That altar would have been the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. And just as a summary statement, the temple in Jerusalem is a big deal to every Jewish person at that time and in the thousand years beforehand. The temple was the building that King Solomon built and was the crown jewel of the people of God. It was the place where their social life, where in ways their economic life, where their religious life, where their community was founded and centered. It was the place where God's presence was most profoundly known to his people. The temple was a place that had been ruined by occupying forces desecrated by pagan kings, and then God's people had rebuilt it and reconsecrated it and said, I don't care what you outsiders do, this is a sacred place for us. The moment Jesus starts talking about the temple, it's safe to say that every Jewish ear in the audience immediately perks up and says, oh, he's talking about something important. Kind of like when I was scrolling through my email inbox, and as you know, we scroll through all sorts of like, okay, delete, delete, archive, I don't want to respond to that, I'll do that later. But when I saw this interview, this email about an interview between a theologian that I know and respect, 
and a Ukrainian pastor, immediately my ears perked up. My eyes perked up. Can I say that? My eyes perked up, and I said, oh, this email matters. It's going to be relevant. It's going to be important. Jesus is talking to this crowd about something that would have been very significant, important, familiar, constant to them. The temple is the location of the altar that Jesus is referring to. And now I want to build up for just a little bit to um, that that last phrase that I said. Uh, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar. Which altar? The altar in the temple in Jerusalem. But now we got to do one more little bit of context. Um, we, when Jesus starts preaching this sermon, we get a couple uh, notes about what's going on. And one of the big notes is we get some geography. We find out where he is when he's preaching. Uh, Matthew 4.18 says, as Jesus was walking along the sea of Galilee. Or again, just a few verses later, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. And so when Jesus goes out and sits down on a mountainside and crowds come to him and his disciples are listening to him, this is all happening in Galilee. And you're all sitting here going, Carl, you emphasized Galilee all three times. That must be because you want us to pay attention. But I don't, you know, sorry, I don't have a map of ancient Israel in my brain, Carl. What's, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm glad you asked. And I really wanted to show off my cartography skills. So just get ready. Um, If you ever want to know the ancient world of Jesus, this is the basic map that you want. This is the starting point of it all. Think of it like a frowny face on its side. And of course, this map is the three main bodies of water of Jesus's world. The Mediterranean Sea, I think think words should show up. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea is the little frowny face. It's bigger than that. You, you might be familiar with the Mediterranean Sea. The Sea of Galilee is up there on the north. And the Salt Sea, or what we often call the Dead Sea, is the big one on the south. This is Jesus' world. Now, we just said Jesus is in Galilee. Not surprisingly, the region of Galilee is in the area on the north part of this map by the Sea of Galilee. And here's the really important thing. Jerusalem, the location of the temple, is down south, just outside the Dead Sea. It is not very close to the region of Galilee. As a matter of fact, depending on where you are in Galilee, if you were to travel to Jerusalem, it would be about at least a 70-mile or three to maybe even five-day journey. Because in case you didn't remember this, um, they didn't have Uber or helicopters. They had to walk. The vast majority of people, the only way to get there was walk. So just take a second and think to myself, when was the last time I walked 70 miles in five days? And for many of us, the answer would be never. Uh, I literally can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, Some of us could imagine it, but we still don't really want to do it. Here's the point. If you were a faithful Jewish person, your annual calendar would have on it at least one, if not as many as three or sometimes more, trips from your home to Jerusalem so that you could offer the prescribed gift on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. 
So wait a minute, wait a minute. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, okay, think about this. Uh, it's, it's Passover. It's the big festival, right? And so you just packed up your family goat, the unblemished one-year-old family goat, and you put it on your shoulders. I don't know if they actually did, but it, it makes a nice image. You put it on your shoulders, and you gathered up your family, and you walked 70 miles from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And then when you got to Jerusalem, you waited in line, because the city of Jerusalem just went from about 100,000 people living there to about a million people living there, because it's the Passover festival, and everybody is showing up so that they can offer their gift on the altar. So you traveled for a week, and then you waited in line. I have no idea how long you waited in line, but I was in Disney World for a while, and some of the lines there got to be three hours long, and there's only 50,000 people at Disney World. There's not a million, so I don't know. It's a long line. And I just walked a long way. So Jesus is saying, okay, you carried your goat. Five days to Jerusalem. You got in line. Maybe you had to wait in line for days. Finally, it's your turn at the altar. And you take your goat down, and suddenly you're like, oh, shoot. (sighs) My brother is angry at me about something. Notice, it doesn't say, and you remember that you did something wrong to your brother. You might be totally innocent. It says, and you remember your brother or sister has something against you. Oh, shoot. But you know what? They got here sooner than me, so they already traveled back to Galilee. I'm going to put my goat down. I'm going to leave it at the altar, and I'm going to travel five days back up to my home so that I can be reconciled. And then... I'm going to travel five days back again. I already missed the festival. Maybe I'll do it anyway. I don't know. The image Jesus paints is one of a huge importance on reconciliation with one another. He's saying you just invested a huge chunk of your time and you should leave it there so that you can go and be reconciled. And again, remember, offering this gift on the altar at the temple is one of the most important things in Jewish life at that time. So in a sense, Jesus is saying that reconciliation is more important than the most important thing in your life of faith. You want to get a picture of how important reconciliation is to Jesus for his people? Here's the picture. God created humanity. And when God created him, he said, this is good. This is not just good. It's an image of me. And humanity took that goodness that God created them with And we broke it, and we smashed it, and we rubbed it around in the dirt. God didn't do anything to break the relationship with us. God didn't do anything wrong. We were the ones who did something wrong to God through our sin and our selfishness, through our greed and our violence. We did it in the garden with Adam and Eve the first time. And as far as I can tell, we keep doing it over and over and over and over and again. And God looked down on his creation and said, my my people have something against me. God didn't do anything wrong, but what did he do in response? He sent his son, Jesus, who gave his life for reconciliation. We said in our Mosaic Sermon series um, about kingdom, and so we could say it this way, reconciliation is its own kingdom value. And our reconciliation with God, our right relationship that God bought for us, is inseparable. It's one and the same. 
with our reconciliation with others. Jesus paints, I think, the greatest possible picture. He places the highest possible value on the degree to which we pursue reconciliation with one another in our lives. Which brings us, as always, to the closing question. Okay, I read the scripture. I can get it. Five-day travel from Galilee down to the temple. I got to put my goat there, and you want me to leave it there. You want me to travel back, be reconciled. I get it. It's important. But getting it is not what Jesus is at. (laughs) Getting it, in Jesus' mind, is what we're going to do with it. So I'm just going to ask, I'm going to ask a few questions. Uh, And I'm sorry for asking you these questions, because I asked myself these questions, and I thought, these are questions that are more convenient not to ask myself. I'd rather just ignore them. That would be more pleasant and lighthearted. That would be, uh, that would be easier. But we're in a sermon series saying, how do I finish well? And I think these are the sorts of things we need to ask ourselves if we want to finish well. So first question, in your life, what relationships need reconciliation? Do you have a brother or a sister, a family friend, family member, a friend who has something against you? The relationship has been broken. I'm not even going to say what we're going to do about it yet. I'm just going to ask you, can we name, can we name that broken relationship in our lives? I'm going to talk about what I often see myself doing when I name that broken relationship. But I do want to pause and say one thing here. Um, Reconciliation is so important. Jesus gave his life for reconciliation. We should give everything we can to pursue reconciled relationships with other people. But I I just, I always want to acknowledge, um, we also live in a world where sometimes the brokenness of a relationship is not just because of the challenges or conflict that comes, but sometimes it's because of abuse, violence, um, oppression, the type of perverted twistedness that Um, should cause us to say, okay, in this context, the first need is to get out and get safe. The first need is to get the victim into a safe place and hold the violent person, the oppressor, accountable for their wrong actions. There are times and there are places where sinful behavior, illegal behavior needs to be stopped and punished before reconciliation is realistically possible. And I know that many of us have seen or been around or even been in abusive relationships. And so I I just always want to make sure that the the biblical call to reconciliation is never misunderstood as a call to stay in an abusive relationship and let that go on. That's never the teaching of Christ. Okay, that was my little aside. So important. But let's just say, uh, I'm just thinking about, let's just say I'm thinking about a friend of mine, and there's a friendship that's been broken. And not, not, not of us did anything terribly wrong, but it's just, man, you know, it's, it started with a small thing, and it got to a big thing, and it's just, it's a broken relationship, and I know they have something against me. So I've named that. Have I named that? Now, here's what I am inclined to do once I've named that relationship, and, and maybe you are as well. I'm often inclined to justify myself. Yeah, but he had it coming. That's why the relationship, that's why he doesn't like what I had to say, because he had it coming. I'm justified in what I've done. Or maybe I excuse myself. That's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, sure, the relationship's broken, but 
What's the problem? I'm just going to excuse. Or maybe I argue with myself. Well, I mean, you know, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or I mean, sure, this point of view, but sure, that point of view, I argue. Or maybe I just straight up rationalize what I've said, what I've done, what my actions are. And rationalizing and arguing and excusing and justifying all pretty much always results in not reconciling. And man, I could do these for days, for months. I think I could do this until I'm at the last stage of my life and look back and go, oh, shoot. Why didn't I instead choose to pursue reconciliation? It's something we know is so familiar to people when they come to the end of their lives and they say, I wish I had. And the end of that sentence is never invested more money so that I could live in greater luxury at the end of my life, or I wish I had bought more stuff and had a thinner flat-screen TV during my middle ages. No, that's never what they say. They always say, I wish I had spent more time invested in that relationship, had a healthier connection with my son, my daughter, my mom, my dad, my brother, my friend. What's the relationship in your life that needs reconciliation? Would you bring that to God as a matter of prayer? Second, if you want to finish well, in order to pursue reconciliation, that must be some sort of a value in your life. So going back to the in commercial, whether it's a dollars in your bank account or vacation days you're trying to take or whatever it is, we got to ask ourselves this. What am I, what are you pursuing with my life? What's the goal? What's the number? What's the target? Because here's the thing, if we can't honestly name what that goal is in our lives, we're never going to be able to evaluate whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong. And on top of it, there's no lack of voices out there, of people who have been successful, who hit the number, who made the, who, you know, who, who got to the top of the ladder, climbed the ladder to the top, invested wisely, you know, got the windfall, whatever it is, and they hit that number and they look back and they go, oh, wait a minute, that actually didn't. Fulfill me. There's this fantastic video about actor, comedian, or by actor, comedian, uh, Jim Carrey. Um, you know, hilarious guy, won so many awards, and he, um, he gave one of the introductory speeches at the Golden Globe Awards a number of years ago. And he was walking out onto the stage, you know, and all he's doing is he's just introducing, I don't remember, whatever category it is, best director or film or whatever, and he's walking on the stage, and you hear the announcer's voice booming over the loudspeakers, right? You can picture it, like golden drapes, everybody's wearing tuxes, gorgeous stage. Jim Carrey's walking out, and the announcer goes, Now welcome two-time Golden Globe award-winning actor Jim Carrey! <sighs> Jim walks out onto the stage, and here's what he says. He says, Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. When I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream of being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. 
and I can stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. He says this to a room full of people who are about to get the very award that he's making fun of, but he actually talks about it in a number of other contexts. He's like, if you want to know who wins the game at life, it's me. I won. I hit the number in every conceivable area, and you know what I found? The same emptiness was, that was there when I had none of it. So, what about you? Are you searching for something that ultimately won't fulfill you? According to God, the thing we should be searching for instead is relationships that show the reconciliation that God himself bought for us. And how do we make that our priority? How do we seek first God's kingdom? Well, here's what we've said all along. As we said, we do it by listening and responding to God's voice, pushing out all the destructive voices in the world around us. We practice gratitude. We practice acceptance. We seek community. We do what Jesus invited us to do today. We live a life in which we be reconciled, the reconciled life with God, with others. My son uh, Asa, three years old, um, some of you know, he, had a, he got diagnosed with a tongue tie. His frenulum, the little piece of skin under his tongue, um, was too big or too tight or something. So he had to have a little surgery um, to cut the frenulum and stitch it up. And I was talking to him uh, right after the surgery, and he was saying, Dad, it's itchy, because there's these stitches in there. And he was getting, uh, uh, understandably, <laughs> pretty upset. And I heard myself, he, he, was, he was talking about how hard it was, and I just found myself going, Asa, you're strong. Asa, you're strong. Asa, you can do it. And I hope that my voice could give a little bit, just a little bit of extra strength to my son. But I know that God's voice will give us the strength we need to live our lives in a way that following Christ we can and we will finish well. Would you pray with me? God, um, I confess, I think together we confess that there are so many times that instead of resisting or pushing away the destructive voices of the world around us, we just welcome them in. It's not only that we hear them, but man, we, we turn up the volume so that we can listen to them even more. We repeat them in our heads. We dig them deep into our hearts. God, we confess that instead of loving you with our whole heart and our whole mind, we have loved all sorts of other things. God, we confess that in our lives we try to finish well by hitting any one of the many numbers this world tempts us to seek. God, we pray that your power would be so present, so formative in our lives that we would be changed. Our hearts would be changed so that we don't even desire the things of the world, but rather our one and only desire is to hear your voice to know who you say that we are, and to live the life you have called us to live, a life of reconciliation, a life of grateful and generous love. God, may we define finishing well as being people who hear your voice, 
who believe about ourselves what you say is true, and then go and live that abundantly in the world around us. Amen.